Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for today's podcast is Dr. Lisa Sutherland, assistant professor of pediatrics and senior nutrition scientist with the Hood Center for Families and Children at the Dartmouth Medical School. Dr. Sutherland has a very interesting blend of uh, talents and backgrounds. She has a PhD in nutrition from the University of North Carolina School of Public Health, one of the finest in the country, uh, and then spent more than 10 years in the retail sales and marketing field. And she's turned her attention now to issues of food marketing um, r- related, food marketing in various media, and with special attention to product placement. So Lisa, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to have you here, and the work you're doing I think is terribly important because this issue of product placements uh, hasn't been explored very much in research, and uh, but it's pretty darn important, isn't it? And, right. and I know you've looked at this. So why don't we start with just explaining what product placements are? Sure, so product placements, um, you know, really in a nutshell is the placement of a brand product or brand apparent. So taking a branded beverage, for example, or a soft drink, and then placing it, whether it's in a television show or in a movie. So it could take lots of different forms, couldn't it? It could. It could be a food. It could be um, It could be a retail food establishment, like a grocery store. It could be a car. Um, those are ones that we commonly see. It could be a watch brand. But yes, and so food and beverage is our interest. And then just thinking of food and beverages, there are many ways that those are placed because there's some times they're depicted as people eating them. Sometimes people are just in a restaurant. Right. Sometimes it's on the counter in a kitchen shot or things like that. Exactly. So, you know, so when you're watching, um, you know, a movie is our particular interest and television's not much different. You might see exactly that. You might see a character actually drinking the product, which is, you know, almost a, a character endorsement or a star endorsement of a product. You might see a banner in the background. You might see a billboard for a fast food company. You might see a cereal box sitting on the breakfast table as kids are actually physically eating the cereal. There might be a grocery store scene. So yes, product placement comes in many you know, you know, shapes and forms. You've told an interesting story about the first prominent product placement sure. for food. Let's hear it. Sure. So in 1982, um, most people, um, when I say this, will know what I'm going to talk about is E.T., so in 1982, Reese's Pieces made its debut, so to speak, in the movie E.T. And in that movie, Elliot, the little boy in the movie, lures um, E.T., the alien, out of his hiding place using Reese's Pieces. What's interesting about that story is a couple things. Number one, the Mars Food Company, they actually want to use peanut M&Ms, um, is what the producer wanted to use. They weren't sure how that food would um, exactly affiliate with the alien and people's perception of their product, which was already pretty well established. So they wouldn't allow that product to be used. But they had Reese's Pieces, which had pretty you know, fledging sales. They were slumping. They weren't sure what to do with the product. So they said, you know, well, why don't you put this product in, in the movie instead? What's interesting is it's also the first known candy, paid product placement for candy in um, a movie, so 1982. For the three-month period after that movie, sales of Reese's Pieces increased by 65%. So it obviously worked. The alien loved them. And I think from there, we can say it's history in terms of product placement in the movies. And so then then the door opened. And And from that time, there have been tremendous numbers. I would say from the floodgate, you go from there. And if you think about the story, really, you know, 1982 was a pivotal year also. It's the same year Coca-Cola bought Columbia Studios. So again, thinking about, you know, People watch these movies not really thinking about the back scene. You know, Coca-Cola then gets depicted for the next, you know, almost decade in Columbia Films as kind of the good guy product, whereas then you see Pepsi in a similar movie 
is the bad guy product. So definitely a very interesting story to be told. It sure is. Yeah. So we'll come, we'll loop back in just a minute and talk about sure. your work on how much, how much of this is occurring. Sure. But let me ask you a question before that. Given that the, the food industry and beverage industries have been spending lots of money doing this over the years, it probably works. That is, it probably really does affect people's behavior with ET example that mm-hmm. you just gave being a, a, a good one. Is that a safe assumption? Can we assume that it's, it's paying off for the, the companies that if they spend $100,000 to place their can of sugared beverage in a, in, in a movie that they're going to get more than $100,000 back in sales? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you just think about the number of people that attend the movies, you know, and the number of impressions, which we can talk about, that are then projected to somebody from an on-screen one-time appearance, absolutely, it's a pretty low-budget buy for what could be a pretty big return by the companies. The other thing I can just tell you from my old marketing days and my retail days is that, you know, you don't do something if it doesn't return an investment for you because you, you change a budget around to something else. So I think as we've seen budgets kind of cut from television advertising to some degree, from actual TV in between um, advertising time, we've seen budgets shift to moving into other mediums. So yeah, I mean, they wouldn't do it if it didn't pay them back. What about the question, the issue about whether people recognize this as advertising? So if, if people see a 30-second commercial embedded in, I mean, in, in between, mm-hmm. you know, quarters of a football game mm-hmm. or something, and it's pretty clear right. it's an advertisement, it has an effect on them, it obviously affects their choices or else the companies wouldn't do it. But here there could be a 30-second exposure to the same product embedded in a movie, and people may not code that as an right. advertisement, especially young people. Do you think that makes a difference in the impact? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that when you're shooting multiple impressions at a young, especially a younger viewer, um, over, a, you know, a really compressed period of time, so if you think about the average movie is about 90 minutes, 80 minutes in length, that that certainly becomes a form of advertising. Do they know it? I would bet not. Does the more savvy older adult get it? I would bet so. Um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of research then to look at the in, the impact of income and socioeconomic and some other variables, but I would I would hypothesize that there's probably some relationship around kind of who's attending to it as advertising versus who they're getting hit by the impressions, maybe cueing it peripherally as you know not thinking about it really, but they can recall it later. So well, there's some uh, some people talk about the fact that people have cognitive defenses against mm-hmm. advertising. And it's one of the reasons that they'll change channels. They'll do right. channel surfing when the advertising comes on, and they'll they'll people will code an advertisement by by not consciously saying, but certainly unconsciously saying they're trying to market something mm-hmm. to me, and I can defend myself against that, although it doesn't work completely. Mm-hmm. But whatever level of defenses there are, probably pretty much eroded with product placements, I would think. Yeah, I mean, product placement really, you know, I, I believe it's really this form, the subtle form of advertising that has just kind of flown under the radar for the last few years. This has been a pretty big emphasis on television um, advertising. And so, yes, you know, It's really, you know, we talk about kind of, you know, in the communication world, this whole theory of persuasion and how people process advertising, you know, is it peripheral, is it central? It's really a lot of peripheral advertising. You know, I see it, it might hit the back of my brain, I might not really think about it, but if I get it in a great enough dose, I'm certainly going to remember it. So the regulatory agencies in Washington are now paying a lot of attention to advertising. The Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, especially with the change of administration, have ramped up their attention to these issues. Are they attending the product placements, or do you think we're falling into the same trap that it's flying under the radar there as well? You know, I still think it's flying under the radar, and it needs to be put to the forefront as some of the discussions are happening. I mean, largely the discussion that I continue to hear is around television. Now, granted, there is starting to be some discussion around product placements 
investment in television as well, which I think is an important discussion. But, you know, I think as we have this discussion and we really think about children, which is where a lot of this, you know, this talk is directed towards, you know, what about movies? What about video games? What about social media like Facebook? What's happening there? You know, I'm sure there are medias I'm not thinking about. What about advert gaming? You know, where kids are on, you know, a website like, um, you know, Candyland playing constantly. So I, I think that other mediums need to be and product placement needs to be a part of that discussion. So your work recently is focused on product placements in movies. Mm-hmm. What do what can we tell people then about how much of it there is and what kind is going on in these media? Well, it's certainly there, so I can tell you that. So yeah, so so my group we we looked at um, we coded the top ten or top twenty I'm sorry box office hits over a ten year period. So we looked at two hundred movies and really the top grossing movies that there were over the time period we looked at from ninety six to two thousand five, and what we found was you know of the two hundred movies seventy percent of them had at least one placement. And of that 70%, you know, multiple almost, you know, that whole sample had more than one placement. So they're certainly there. And that's just for food and beverage. I mean, that's all we looked at. We didn't look at alcohol. We didn't look at tobacco, just food and beverage. Or cars or anything. We, no, nothing like that. Yeah, kind of some of the typical ones that you see in movies that are quite obvious. You know, the other thing we really were interested in is kind of the the tween or the 9- to 13-year-old population or the kid-targeted movies And what we found is when you look at the distribution as well, you know, three quarters of the PG-13 movies had some brand placement in them, you know, and that's an audience that's clearly being targeted. One third of the G movies had a brand placement in them. So they're there, you know, I think we need to be in tune to them. um, And we're continuing to look at that data. So what does that say to you about the self-regulatory pledges that the industry has made to market less to children? Sure. So I'll I'll use an example of that. So in in 2006, the Better Business Bureau led this pledge or this promise made, and 15 companies have signed on to it, that they will limit their marketing to kids under 12. Um, I think my concern with that, just looking at what we've seen across movies, especially PG-13 movies, you know, there is an argument that, well, a PG-13 movie shouldn't be seen by somebody under 12. We know from age compression in the entertainment industry that those younger kids are watching those movies. We also found in those movies that three-quarters of the beverages advertised were for sugar-sweetened beverages. So while companies have made this fledging you know, pledge to not advertise sugar-sweetened beverage on children's television programming on TV, it's in the movies. It's there. So maybe my budget's not in TV for the advertising, but I certainly can throw it into the movies and know that I can throw out a bunch of impressions to an audience that I would like to build the loyalty with. Let's talk a little bit more about how much of this is, there is. You said that of the vast number of these movies that you reviewed had at least one product mm-hmm. placement. So that establishes a lower, a lower end of the range. What's right. the high end of the range? I mean, how many of these can be in a single movie? Yeah, sure. So, one of the, so, so the highest we saw were 100 Food and beverage only, 100 brand appearances in a movie. Oh, wait. Let's just make sure I'm hearing that number right. Yeah. So in a single movie, right. just for food and beverages, mm-hmm. 100 products. 100 brand appearances, right, for food. So so the movie is an Adam Sandler movie, Big Daddy. I believe it's a PG-13 comedy, so definitely a tween targeted um, movie. And in that movie, it's a storyline of Adam Sandler, who is this young man who all of a sudden has found himself to be a father of a little boy. And the product in that movie, I can tell you, um, I don't know off the top of my head for sure, but I would bet that there's not a healthy product in that movie, that it's a lot of fast food and chips and sugar-sweetened beverage. So yeah, 100. And of course, vast numbers of people watch these movies. And I think you've 
made the point that not only do people see the movie once, but there are some people who see it multiple times. Right. You know, our work is really, you know, we believe it's a pretty conservative estimate at this point because it's really based on a one-time viewership of a DVD. And, you know, and I, I was, was saying, you know, with my own children, you know, I, we used to drive from, Maine to, from North Carolina to Maine every summer. And, you know, there were certain movies that I had heard probably 20 times, but I had never seen. But my kids were sitting in the backseat watching those movies. So, yeah, so, you know, we know that viewership doesn't happen once in the movies. We know that viewership then, especially with children, more so than adults, and especially with young children, that they will watch a movie over and over and over and over again. So you've made the point very clear that this is occurring, that there's a lot of it, and it sounds like for the food and beverage products that are being advertised, they're not the healthy ones that nutrition people would be recommending. Do you think there's a role for government to be involved in regulating this? Yeah, you know, I, I would I would certainly like to see the FTC and some other agencies look at this and to at least think about it. I mean, I would love for, like, the tobacco industry, for companies to have to disclose the amount of money that they're paying for product placement. You know, I, I get the question often, well, do you know how much, you know, studios paid or pro- your producers were paid to have this in the movies? I don't. I'm not privy to that information. It's proprietary. We actually call them brand appearances because I can't prove that they were product placements. Um, or we can't prove that with our work. But I think that, you know, if we could start at the level of at least disclosing the amount of money going into it, then we can begin to tell a bigger story. Well, talking about telling a good story, your work is, as I mentioned, very important because it's highly unique, highly important because there's so much of this going on. So thank you very much for sharing. Well, thank you for having me here. It was great. So our guest today was Dr. Lisa Sutherland, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Senior Nutrition Scientist at the Dartmouth Medical School. Uh, Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a list of the other excellent podcasts that we've recorded and a variety of other resources, including the free email newsletter that comes out monthly on food and nutrition and obesity issues. Thank you.